Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here recording episode 22 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. As I sit here today with my sort of bland background, I'm in a hotel room in Orlando, Florida. So if the sound quality isn't as great on this, I apologize, but sometimes you have to do what you have to do. We're here in Florida dropping Gracie off for her Disney college program. And the last few days have been an emotional roller coaster for sure. Switching from one hotel to another, getting her to events and organizations, moving her in, getting all these things done and realizing that you know, today's our last day, then I won't see her for several weeks. So this is a first for me in her life. I've been away from Gracie 10 days. That's the longest I've ever been away. And that was a trip to Hawaii and then seven days to Amsterdam. And that's it (laughs) in her whole life, 17 days at a time. It's stressful. And I'm beginning this podcast a bit disheveled. If anything, I'm authentic. So here I am, disheveled Barb. Season three here, I'm really focusing on five years that lead up to Molly's death. Those were my job loss to Molly loss the bookends of loss on five years of my life and really connecting the effects of trauma on the body. And it comes from this book and I'm going to mention it every time. (laughs) Plug for the author, I guess. The body keeps the score. I remember shortly after I lost Molly, this utter grief, I was such a wreck. And I found this amazing therapist, Elizabeth Moulton, who's now retired. And she eased my mind tremendously by explaining the scientific connection between a mother and a child. And I've spoken about this before, I believe, but neurologically speaking, the mother and the child growing in the mother, there's a neurological connection. So, you know, to learn a skill, your brain lays down, you create neural pathways in the brain. You throw a basketball, the more you throw it, the stronger those neural pathways in the brain get and the better you get at throwing the basketball. Child loss is no different and grief is no different. So the connection between the mother and the baby begins, you know, at conception, that baby's in there. And neurologically speaking, they talk back and forth. And so the nervous system of the mother and the baby respond back and forth to one another. When the baby's born, this connection does not cease to exist. It just changes. But the baby cries, the mother responds. The bodies are really in sync. And I noticed that with Jack right now. Kenny was telling a story. It was a crowded room and Jack started to fuss and Kenny leaned over to Gracie and said, let's see how long it takes mom to see that Jack is crying. And it was a millisecond. And I look over scanning the room to find him. The mother and the child are very connected. And normally with neural pathways, when you stop using them, they shrink and atrophy and, you know, disappear. Not so with these neural pathways. When they aren't responded to, they scream louder. So think of a child lost in the mall. So the child lost is screaming for the mother. The mother can't hear the child. The mother's screaming for the child. That panic. The more times the mother or the child screams for one another and they don't get responded to, the more intense and anxious and loud the cries get. When the child and the mother are united, there is great relief and reconnection and everything calms down. So when Molly died, what happened for me is the neural pathways that are still connected to Molly are yelling for her, Molly, 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 where are you? And they don't get better. And so in those first few months after her death, 
several times I ended up in the drop-off line. I've talked about that at Runlet. I'm in line behind the parents of all of our friends, looking at all of our friends, waiting for school to start. Because I was just so accustomed to living a certain way and doing things a certain way. And Molly wasn't responding to my cries. I talked about having to lie down on her grave. I spent a lot of time lying on the grass at Blossom Hill Cemetery because it was as close as I could get to her. I just tried to picture in my head what it would look like with a special camera that could look underground. And I'm lying on top of her and she's in that casket in her pretty pink dress. At those moments, I'm only six feet away from her. If she's even that deep. I don't know how deep they even bury people, but that was the way that I could connect those narrow pathways. And that was a relief to me because there were many people in my life who kept telling me I needed to get over it. I needed to be strong. I needed to be happy. I needed to be all these things. And I had a brain system in place in my nervous system that wasn't being satiated. And there's no way to satiate it because there was no Molly. So the only way this ever gets better is to eventually get retrained. And so I did a lot of basic things like driving different ways, avoiding parts of town that really triggered triggered the response so that it could at least relax. Let me tell you, this Molly, answer me right now, please. Mommy needs you response is as strong as ever on some days. Now that I have a better understanding of how it works, I can control it somewhat better or I can handle how I feel from it somewhat better. So in the process of looking through the years leading up to Molly's death, which began with my job loss, I've thought a lot about what that loss did to me and how I came to have lost my job the way that I did in the first place, self-awareness and self-study all the time. It's the only way it will ever get better. And I also have talked about different things that trigger things. So I make huge connections with things. And I think trauma victims do. We spend a lot of our life, especially when you've had trauma as a child and you don't have the intellect to process it because you're little, you try to make sense of everything. And I have an incredible memory and I connect smells to certain things. I connect a song or a piece of music to certain things, TV shows and movies. As I begin this episode, I'll start with a movie called The Blind Side. It's New Year's Eve, 2010, turning into 2011. I've been suspended from my job all of November and December. And that was the quietest, most deafening silence of my life at that time. All my teacher friends disappeared because if I could get suspended, then they could. It was very, very isolating, utterly isolating. Not surprisingly, I drank quite a bit. Molly and Gracie didn't know I'd lost my job. I got up every day and took them to school and I picked them up. You know, they weren't there during the day. I didn't say anything about it. They were in second and fourth grade. So a lot of people didn't know. And it was New Year's Eve and we had recliners in the room. That's my office now. And I, and I sat and watched the movie, The Blind Side. And I'd had drinks. Molly, Gracie, and Kenny went to bed. And I was just alone on this recliner. I'm quite sure I was probably texting and communicating with Roy. He was a big piece of that. Anyone that lives in Concord read the newspapers back then. And I was just wrecked. I was, I was wrecked. And so I put the movie The Blind Side on. It was, it was a relatively new movie at that time. And it chronicles the story of a man named Michael Orr and his traumatic childhood and how he became a professional football player and came to be cared for by a family in Memphis, Tennessee. And so it was a really, really good movie. It's like a Remember the Titans level just those really good movies that tells an incredible story that needs to be heard. The piece, not realizing at the time, just new into the job loss trauma, the piece that really resonated with me is the trauma piece and how well the movie did it, flashing back to episodes of childhood trauma and fear and how that manifests in the actions of the main character, Michael. And it's a movie and it was Hollywooded up and I know that his actual life probably was quite different, but I remember watching the movie and I remember falling asleep in the recliner. I just fell asleep there. 
And Kenny came down and woke me up and I just started sobbing, sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. Why would I lose my job? I'm a good person. I'm not bad to kids. Why, why, why? And as I found out the whys as the year went along, you know, looking back on it now, I realized that I was just played by some people and some really, really, really very, very unkind people worked together to solve a problem, which the problem was me. (laughs) That's the easiest way to summarize it without going into another hole. That will be its own season. And I have written extensively about it, so it won't be new to a lot of people, but it'll be the first time I've put it to words. At any rate, that movie, The Blind Side, came to be like my anthem almost, my theme for my job loss, because it was such a huge piece of my life at the time. I really loved the movie. I like Sandra Bullock. I just liked the whole, the whole movie. The end of the movie, he's very successful. This he becomes this amazing NFL football player. He's had a wonderful life and he's done really good things for people and never forgotten from whence he came and and who he is. The other piece that I really liked was that football became therapeutic for him. It became a logical connection between his trauma and the reality of who he was on the inside and what he could utilize that to become. He felt about himself physically, it seemed in the movie. A lot like I feel about myself sometimes. There's a really good scene where everyone calls him Big Mike. He's really having a tough time. And Sandra Bullock's character says, all right, tell me something about you you think I should know. One thing. And he says, I don't like to be called Big Mike. And there was a connection with that name to a life that he couldn't process. Didn't want to remember, but didn't want to forget. That was his traumatic life, being deserted by his mother and not knowing his father and all of the things that were going on in his life. And it brought me back to my sister. Johanna, we grew up calling her Jody, and she got to be 18 or 19 and decided, I'm no longer Jody, I'm Johanna. And the connection of the name Jody to her was childish and powerless, and, and she felt like, I am Johanna. And it was difficult for some of us who had spent our lives calling her Jody to realize, okay, no, 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 now she's Johanna. It was a difficult change, and, and these are the things that resonated with me at the time. So what does this have to do with my job loss? Well, everything, because in my life, I have found the greatest comfort and the greatest self-therapy through movement, through athletics, through exercise, through making my body do things that other people think it can't. And that was a big thing with me for running. I'm so asthmatic that everyone thought, what the heck, Barbara, you'll never be a runner. And I most certainly am. But at the time, it was a big risk for me. But I loved, running was the first time I felt okay inside of myself. So it's New Year's Eve, 2010 to 2011, and I'm about two weeks away from resigning in ending a 21-year teaching career. In the process of this, when I look back at how I reacted to things that were asked of me, I really, when I look back at how I responded to all of the meetings that led to my suspension, all of the questions, all of it, I just was willing to do what the bad people said. I just acquiesced left and right and never really fought for myself. And looking back on it, I think, why would I have said that? Why would I have not done this? Why didn't I do this? It's because of how I respond to things. So when I was little and I was going through my abusive situations, when I was being abused, I didn't fight back. I made believe I was asleep. I just became perfectly still. I didn't respond. I didn't say anything. I was just perfectly still. And I would think about other things. I'd climb a mountain or I'd put a puzzle together or I would just do something in my head that took me away from what was happening to me and really, really get far away. This became a great skill in life. It's called dissociation. I always call it stepping out. (laughs) Apparently it's psychologically not very healthy, but it's what I do. And the good part of stepping out is if you're being tortured or hurt or abused or whatever, you step out, you can separate yourself from what's happening to your body. So it's like you get out of your body. 
The bad side is sometimes stepping out means you don't, you're so uncomfortable in your body that you can't experience your life as it's happening because you're out, you're not in it. And that's where I've had trouble in my life going along. I think it's why I'm easily taken advantage of because I just am so quick to agree and acquiesce because I want the bad to stop and I want everything to be okay. If I could come up with two sentences in my head that bring me back to that little seven-year-old girl, please, 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 I want it to stop. I just want everything to be okay. <laughs> so fast forward to today and COVID, and I think everyone can relate to those two statements. We want this craziness to stop and we want everything to be okay. In my response, finally agreeing to resign even and not even fight for my job in a hearing, I just stayed still. So in this book, The Body Keeps the Score, there's a couple is in a car accident and they, they survive, but it's horribly traumatic car accident, multiple cars involving a big truck trapped in the car. They responded completely differently. The husband was frantic and, ah, you know, just true like PTSD and anything would happen. He'd have these responses. And the wife just became frozen. She just became numb. She sat still. And when they did all these tests on them, these brain tests that a lot of the research for this book, their brain patterns were completely different. His was all over the place and hers was completely blank, just still. Without going through the book and getting into the scientific nature of these things, people respond differently to trauma and to different levels of trauma. They give an example. Say you're in the woods being attacked by an animal. So first you have fight or flight. Okay, I can outrun this thing. And then the animal catches you and you think, okay, I can fight it off. And then it bites your arm off and you realize I'm done. And you just go into a place where you wait till it's over. You stop. I had to put the book down at that point because it brought me back to the child abuse part where, whereas a little kid, you know, you just, you don't want what's happening to happen, but the person that's hurting you is a person of authority. And, you know, you're a little, you're little and it's the 1970s. So you do what you're told. You don't, you know, you don't disobey a grown up. And I wasn't comfortable enough with this grown up to disobey. You just did what you were told. And so I go through that process of like, okay, I'll, I'll roll over. Okay, I'll pull the covers up. Okay, I'll go to the bathroom and get out of here. And then when none of it works, when you realize what you think is going to happen, is going to happen no matter what you do, all you can do is wait for it to be over. At least that's how it was for me in my little seven-year-old self. As I have looked through a lot of my traumas in my life, I do the same thing. I, I fight to a point. I think my mind is trained to know it's going to happen anyway. It's going to happen anyway. So why fight? And it's going to happen anyway. So why not just say yes? The number of times I have agreed to do things that every little inch of my body, every little nudge says, no, no, no. I get too many to count. And it comes back to when you've trained yourself to separate yourself from your body, it's very, very hard to sit in it and listen to it. And our bodies are so connected to our minds and our nervous systems and our emotions. They can give us so much information. Our bodies tell us so much. Right now, I'm just really able to put together the pieces that connect so much of my life to how separate I am from my body. I've often bragged, as many distance runners will do, that, that I can just, yeah, running hurts. Of course it hurts. You just tell it to stop. I remember when I was a coach and coaching some really elite athletes, I would ask them, what are your tricks? And one runner that I coached who had a pretty traumatic life herself, she goes, I just tell myself to shut up. Just shut up. Keep going. Shut up. Keep going. <laughs> How is that for healthy mind control? Anyway, as I think back to my job loss in New Year's Eve 2010 to 2011, where I had spent the year prior sort of unknowingly setting this whole scenario up for myself. I get brought back to scene in, in The Blind Side where Sandra Bullock's character explains to, the, to Michael that the football team is his family and that you do this to protect him, you do this to protect him. And suddenly the game clicks and he figures it out. And he, he had very strong protective instincts. 
he was big in size and so he could protect people, including himself. And so when I look back on me, I remember as a child when this started happening to me, I immediately became scared for other members in my family, other young members in my family, two of whom were my sister and my brother. And so I became vigilant. I was the babysitter anyway. My mom was away quite a bit and my dad away quite a bit. And so I became the babysitter and I was just vigilant about making sure they were safe. I just didn't want anything to ever happen to them. And when I went off to college, that was like them losing their another mother because I spent a ton of time with them growing up. I looked at that throughout my whole life, wanting to make it right, wanting to acquiesce, wanting to please. I was often the peacekeeper in my family, a classic middle child, I think. As I've gone through and go through thinking about what to talk about in this podcast and what to share and how to be helpful and, and supportive with it, I realized that I just have to share what it was like for me because I think the number of women, well, I, and I shouldn't limit it to women, but, but I'm a woman and so that's how, how I identify anyone that's been victimized and, and made to feel powerless. And I think sometimes little boys suffer the most. Women are sometimes allowed to be powerless. You know, we're women after all. But, you know, boys are supposed to grow up into men that can solve it all. And I think sometimes little boys that are abused struggle greatly in this way. So here I am in 2011, having lost a 21-year teaching career and running career. And all of the people and connections that went with it are forever changed. Four months, November, December, January, February, four months. I took the girls to school and went home and got into bed. I just couldn't function. It hurt too much to go running. It hurt too much. Everything hurt too much. I don't think Kenny quite knew what to do. I know that he was very angry at me for a lot of the things that led up to the, the situation. The, the media got a hold of it, and the next couple of years of my life became a giant media circus. And for me, the hardest part is when you've grown up in abusive situations and your goal is to protect others from it, to be doubted for people to say things about me that, well, what did you do to lose your job? You must have done something bad. I was mortified that I would be the one to be made to look bad when the safest person to put your kid with anytime is me. I will fight to the death for anyone's child to make sure they're safe. And that was very difficult for me. So some things that came up for me that have come up in reading this book and that look at my actions in the months after losing my job make a lot of sense to me. In this book here, The Body Keeps the Score, it says surviving trauma takes perseverance and persistence on the part of the victim. We go through all this, we survive the trauma, we rebuild our lives, we move along only to get into the same trouble over and over and over again. So do I seek out trouble? Do I go looking for it because I want everyone to notice me and I'm a drama queen? No, but yes, our brains are hardwired to find what satiates the nerve endings, what calms things down, so to speak. So when you look at a lot of behaviors of trauma survivors and people with PTSD, the self-destruction is often numbing, or it's the only way they can remind themselves they're alive. So lots and lots of girls that are abused do things like throw up their food or pull out their hair or cut themselves or pick at their skin. It's not to damage themselves. Oh, I hate myself. It's much deeper than that. It's a feeling of rush and release. It's okay, I'm alive because I just threw up my food. Okay, I'm bleeding, so I'm alive. Okay, I can feel the pain, I'm alive. It's much deeper than, oh, I hate myself. I mean, there's a lot of self-hatred as well. But this resonated with me because I look at my life sometimes as one dramatic event after another. And, you know, I have people that tell me I'm a drama queen. The last thing I want to be is a drama queen. But you're right. The last thing I also want is to have a boring life. I've balanced that out many times. In the worst moments, I would give anything for a boring life if it had Molly in it. So the other thing that comes to mind, I have some notes here, so is mindfulness. So mindfulness gets a lot of play these days, but it's really being in the moment and being present. Be mindful. Stop. Take a breath. Look around. Put the pieces together. 
So I struggle with this and I struggle so much with yoga and sitting still. And, and I know that sometimes people get impatient with me. Well, then that means you need it. But when I look at the pathology in my head and your medial prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that really sifts and balances and coordinates all your emotions and plugs them in for you so you can say, oh, I'm angry. Why am I angry? Well, because I had this happen to me. My daughter's dead. I'm angry. You have to sit and process that through. And that sitting inside the body is almost impossible for someone like me, or it has been impossible for me because when I sit inside my body, the first thing I'm inclined to think about or feel is what it felt like to be abused. And it's like, ugh. And so I immediately shudder and then I shut my head off and think about something else. If whatever the abuse is for you, if you have to shut it off not to feel it, you know, it's like the PTSD victims from war who go to the fireworks. The only way to be okay at the fireworks is to shut off the mechanism that caused you to be afraid of the noise in the first place. Well, that's fine. You're, you're shutting off the gunfire, but you're not processing it or, or helping to alleviate its effect on you. So mindfulness practice, which strengthens the medial prefrontal cortex, is the cornerstone of trauma recovery. I'm crying a lot today. Even reading that makes me cry because, because I realized that just sitting and breathing, <laughs> KK will just love me for this. But the one thing I struggle with the most is the thing that's most important in helping me heal. I always say I don't like being told what to do. And then I find out what, what I'm being told to do is the right thing. <laughs> that was a huge piece for me. If something else that happens with trauma, and I think it's why I do well when I have external structure. When I took the teaching job at Concord High School, taught for 15 years at Walker School, and I'd written myself a note that I wouldn't spend one, I wouldn't teach in one place for 30 years, and I was halfway there. And I panicked and moved from the elementary school to the high school, and you know that ended terribly. Had I stayed in my elementary job, I'd probably still be teaching at Walker School. Having said that, I was both parts afraid of losing something, uh, afraid of being, oh, the boring teacher, like Mr. Holland's opus, you know, he does what he doesn't want to do versus living this exciting life and doing 50 million things. The external structure is imperative for me because I don't have it in me to sit and really be in my body and figure out what needs to happen next. How do I organize a schedule for myself? How do I stick to it? I don't have to think. If I look at the schedule and it says show up at 745, I just get there at 745. Period one, teach your class. I teach my class. All of the external structure that goes into public school teaching or any job where you have to sort of hit a time card or be someplace at a certain time takes away the need to self-analyze. Just do what you're told. Now, just do what you're told. Don't tell. Be quiet. Shh. Don't say anything. Just do what you're told. The theme for me here is huge and, and it relates into my job loss in more ways than I can even count. So something else that trauma victims suffer with is agency, having a sense of agency. And agency is owning your own life, like this is my life. Interoception, it's being aware and present in your body. Knowing what we feel precedes knowing why we feel it. So being present and aware inside my body, thank you, no. This is something that's been incredibly difficult for me all of my life. And explains the two years of obliteration after Molly's death where I just was high and drunk all the time. I couldn't even, I couldn't even be numb on my own. It was just horrifying. Owning my life. I said this morning, you know, I'm in this hotel room here. Kenny and Gracie are out dropping off Gracie's car. They have Jack. I was just a mess. I'm like, I have no control of my life. And then I sit down to start this podcast and agency pops up. I'm the one that can control my life. And I'm utterly confused and baffled as to how to do it because what it takes is a big breath and mindfulness. Maybe even the awful M-word meditation. So I just don't have 
any practice in this because it's too painful for me to get still. I really have a hard time. In an effort to shut off terrifying sensations, we deaden our capacity to feel alive. And I just spoke about this a few minutes ago where, yes, it's good if you can shut your brain off and not feel what's happening to you, but that's what you learn. That's how you learn to live. And so many things can't happen that way. Losing, you know, a decrease in the medial prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that self-analyzes all this stuff, explains why trauma victims lose their sense of purpose and direction. Since Molly's death, and actually since my job loss, I've really just gone around in circles. And, you know, I get angry when people, when people say things to me like this. You know, Kenny, Kenny doesn't criticize ever. I think he, he's quiet and he observes. I know that Roy was often quite willing to remind me how I always said I was going to do this, that, and the other thing and never did it. And he's right. I do say I'm going to do a lot of things and I don't do them. And it's easy for me to make a list of all my failures. But in this reading, in this study on all of this, it it blows me away that there's science to back so many things (laughs) in a society that is crappy on science right now. New Year's Eve, 2010 to 2011, I'm now unemployed. I negotiated a settlement with the district and I was paid and had insurance for the remainder of my contract, which went all the way until August 31st of 2011. I had a million people telling me what to do and that what I wanted was to have my job back. And I was just paralyzed and stuck in that denial for, for all of that time. I, you know, I officiated track meets and I started timing a ton more road races and I applied for some other teaching jobs, but not, not wholeheartedly. I also really tried to just immerse myself in Gracie and Molly. And, and if I can have one piece of gratitude for my job loss is that I spent so much time with Gracie and Molly in those years, going on their field trips and being able to pick them up and bring them everywhere that never would have happened had I been teaching in the district. So I got all this time with them that I might not have had so that if I had still lost Molly, I wouldn't have had all that time. I also feel had I not lost my job and I had my medical insurance, I would have found the brain tumors before her death. And that could have prevented her death because I could have said, look, I had them and they might've been more likely to look inside of her head. Anyway, 2011 was really a year of numbness, just numb. I was in a panic. How was I going to support my kids having health insurance and just, you know, I started working 50 million jobs. That whole spring and into summer was just sort of a lot of panic for me. It was during that time that I met Robin and we became friends and, you know, she took me to lunch and just wanted to know what happened. And In hindsight now, you know, I can compare a lot of behaviors with people in my life and I see patterns and red flags now. I was just willing to spill it all to somebody I hardly knew. And that, that can be, people can be very, very adept and good at getting you to tell them things. I often think I tell people too much as I hear I am on a podcast telling you everything. But we became friends and we started doing some things together. We went to happy yoga. We just started, she just really tried to encourage me to do things and to get out and to not be invisible. That summer, I worked a ton of jobs. I was tap dancing, so I went to a tap dancing competition. I tried so hard to keep Gracie and Molly's life the same. And then the fall came, and it was the first day of school, and I wasn't going. And it was, it was devastating. It was a big crash for me. At that time, some neighborhood friends of mine ceased our friendship as well and saw that coming. I wasn't all overly surprised at the time. Molly and Gracie were devastated, and they just wanted, they wanted, I remember Molly sobbing, like, I just want my life back. You know, she had been mistreated on the school bus by a neighbor and it was traumatizing. And Kenny, I don't really recall, Kenny was very busy in his own business, which was tanking. I think at the time, it was the perfect storm of things really going south for us, the beginning of things really, really, really tanking financially and emotionally and marriage-wise. All of it just started to really fall apart. His business was in disastrous trouble. And I knew none of this because I wasn't involved in, I was involved in my own 
issues. That's when I started working at Flips, which I loved, but it was a not a very good paying job, which, you know, a part-time gym job isn't a good paying job. You know, it's not a reflection on working at Flips. And I tried to be busy. At this time, Roy had been pretty insistent, like, look, this is the perfect time to make a break, get out of Concord, leave Kenny. Quite honestly, I just wanted everything to be okay. I was in utter panic. Nothing made sense. I understood that, you know, I couldn't leave Gracie and Molly alone with Kenny in a house that was going to disappear. I didn't want to take Molly and Gracie away from Kenny because he's a good dad and they had their day-to-day life was stable. And I just thought I could make it, I could just keep it stable. Unbelievably unhealthy and unfair to everyone around. We all played our parts and I made my decisions and Roy made his decisions. And we marched along trying to maintain some level of relationship and friendship in ridiculously stressful times. I also felt like a lot of what I had done, I had done for him and that please don't abandon me now. So being the thought of having to do all this by myself, again, was paralyzing. Is this healthy? No. Will me sharing this help somebody? Absolutely. Because I know darn well, a lot of things that happen to us as traumatized people look like self-sabotage. And to an untraumatized, uneducated person, that's an accurate way to describe it. The word no could come in handy in my life and have saved lots and lots of tragedies for me. But it wasn't in my nature to say no, and I didn't know how to not be helpful and not respond to the ways that I did. So as 2011 wrapped up, I was working a million jobs. I'd gotten hired at VLAX, where I still still work. And that job became a wonderful way for me to earn good money and support my family and have a lot of free time because it's, you know, it's not in class day to day looking, you know, the kids do the work on their own. I correct it, that sort of thing. So that ended up being the way that 2011 ended, but the biggest piece and the piece that comes back to the blind side for me and the the piece that comes to the man I mentioned, the coach that I mentioned in my last podcast and all the people is in the connections with the mind, the body, the spirit is CrossFit. So in November of 2011, I followed Robin to a CrossFit class. And remember, I I wasn't running at all anymore. I mean, I, I had started running again, but I couldn't do it for several months. I'd start running and I'd just start sobbing because I wasn't a coach anymore. And I'd see Concord High kids run by my house and I'd just dissolve into a puddle. It was an unbelievably horrible time. Just as bad at the time as how it was after Molly died. When I look at how I reacted to that, I reacted exactly the same way in Molly's death. I just was decimated and numbed and still. And when I could finally move around, all I wanted to do was fix it, fix it, fix it, which meant putting it back the way it was. Like after Molly's death, just come back, come on, Molly, come back, come back. And it took me two years to realize she really wasn't going to come back. In that visceral level, you know, obviously, you know, intellectually, I knew she was dead, but it doesn't stop you from thinking she might come back. And that's how I was with my job. So I had created a life for myself now that gave me some independence. I could get away. I could, the girls could still dance. You know, we qualified for Medicaid because we were incredibly financially strapped so they could get health care. It was horrible, horrible times. Kenny was getting sick and his sickness was sicker, but I joined a CrossFit gym and it took I weighed about 150 when I joined, maybe 148, a little heavier than I am right now. I joined in November and in the beginning of January, we got our tap dancing costumes and they were these red fringy dresses. And when I was measured initially for a costume, I was large. And then I lost 17 pounds in six weeks and it was just working out. And I changed my eating habits a little, but not much, but it was just the CrossFit. But what got me was how much fun it was. I liked the challenge of trying new things. I liked the class atmosphere. I liked that we all worked out together, even though we were different genders and ages and sizes and abilities. I liked that it was in a, <laughs> behind 
Taylor rental in an auto body strip mall, kind of. It was amazing. I loved everything about it. But what I loved most was that it was like a team. It felt like a team and that I was actually pretty good at it. But I liked how it made me feel and it settled it down. It really settled me down and helped me to begin to think a little bit more clearly. So going into 2012, while my life wasn't in many ways any better at all, I was feeling better inside. And it was that mind-body connection. It was my body. It was using my body to feel better. In 2011, when I couldn't work out, I put weight on, felt terrible about myself, drank a lot. I look back at my drinking and I'm amazed I'm as healthy as I am now. And I belong to a religion that espouses the sobriety. <laughs> That's been a challenge for me. The only time I'm really good at not drinking is when I'm pregnant. I have no trouble not drinking when I have a baby in the belly. Maybe I should just stay pregnant. That was difficult for me. But I'm amazed. I come back again and again to the connection between the mind and the body. And I have a very, very frustrating relationship with it because Molly was disbelieved. Oh, you're a teenage girl. It's all in your head. Well, it was all in her head, literally. But it was assumed that her emotional stressors were the problem and not an actual tumor. And so I go around and around with wanting to connect stress and trauma to the body and its physical attributes and, and maladies and such. So I look back, I really look back, like giving this podcast right now, I'm under a lot of stress and I have this scar from my surgery and it gets tight. When I'm stressed out, I can feel it when I talk, like the skin pulling and I'm having this like unbelievable scar moment right now. I cannot deny the fact that the two are married. <laughs> and, you know, I think we go through life thinking we know this and until it really hits you in the face, how connected the mind and the body and the spirit are, you don't really realize it. My job loss, 21 years in the district, gone from July to November, August, September, three months, three months of an ex-friend walking in and making up a story about me that a corrupt superintendent chose to believe and job loss, 21-year career. That still is hard for me. And when I look back on that friendship and this chunk of my life, it's hard for me not to get angry about the fact that mostly I feel angry that I was stupid enough to fall for. I'm stupid enough again and again to fall for these things. It will take me a long time to work through that. But I think this is the beginning for me to sit here and look into my camera at my face and say, I just feel stupid for believing the things I believed. I feel that I did what people like me do. We shut the body off. We ignore it. No, no, no. Don't think about it. Stay busy. I have 9,000 things I'm supposed to do. In, in my little breakdown here before Gracie and Kenny left with Jack, I have this to do and this to do. Nine, why do I have 9 million things to do? I could just say no to all of it. I don't know. And so the journey for me continues. So in wrapping up today, sitting here in Orlando, Florida, at the Residence Inn by Marriott, I think I want to say that is living in the past healthy? No. But is reflecting upon the past and learning from it healthy? Yes. And my past comes up again and again and again. And the physical sensations, what thoughts can do to me physically, a fleeting thought and how I react is mind-boggling. And research and reading and listening to other women talk. I've been actually listening to a lot of Glennon Doyle now. Just there's so many podcasts from women like me talking about all of these things. I realized that I'm on this terrific journey and, and the journey is to put together my mind and my body. And I don't know how that's going to go. Hopefully it doesn't take away my ability to hurt. Um, in the CrossFit gym, I'm very legendary for being really, really good at chipper workouts. And a chipper workout is like a long workout that has just like a list of things. And you just go through the list and get it all done. And they typically take between 20 and 30 minutes. I love those workouts. You just put the music on and hurt until it's over. There's no rest. You know, you just keep going, these long workouts. And I, 
I can excel at those workouts. I'm much better than people that are much fitter than me. It's a mindset, it's endurance, you know, it's the distance runner in me. So I'm gonna end here. Next few episodes, I'll work through those years. I'll work through my CrossFit journey. I'll talk about running and breaking five in the mile, those kinds of things, all in an effort to find out when was the decision made? What was the first step in the beginning and the end of Molly? If there was a first step, and maybe there isn't, I don't know, but we're often told to honor our loved ones that are lost. And the way that I can honor Molly is to become better myself and to figure out all the pieces and parts that go into what happened to her and what happened to us during that time and what was happening to us leading up to her death. And this is part of it. And the lessons learned in my job loss continue to come and present themselves. So I'm going to spend the rest of the day helping Gracie get settled in, enjoy one more warm Florida day, talk to some students on VLAX, muggle a pudgy 10-month-old baby who was 10 months yesterday as I record this on the 21st of January, and try to continue the journey of connecting my oh-so-troubled mind to my seemingly amazing body. <laughs> anyway, I hope you're all doing well. I hope that you're marching into through January and into February in a, in a good frame of mind. As always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.